dark side. Light this bitch up. Everybody, my name is James D. Fiore, and this is Blackbolt. This is the start of Plymouth Brethren Week here on Blackbolt, and I wanted to start off this week uh, with with one of the most powerful stories that I have uh, regarding an ex member of the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church. Everyone that I've talked to who is an ex member has had their own stories of turmoil and abuse and isolation and there are a couple stories that sort of stand out for a few particular reasons but this one is definitely a standalone tale this family has been involved with the brethren since its inception we're going back you know i guess 150 160 years or something like that and or maybe even more the the idea of having like an intergenerational family tree in the brethren is not unique but sometimes if you can sort of get a grasp on your family's history things become a little bit clearer in the process process of trying to figure out what's happened to you so here today to talk to us about his own experience is mr craig hoyle craig how are you buddy hey james i'm good thanks how's it going i'm doing okay sir so thank you for coming, for one thing. And uh, give me an idea. I always like to start off these interviews by sort of talking about the beginning. And usually the beginning, uh, for me, where I usually start, is the person's childhood. But for you, I would like to sort of take a different route. Because uh, as I've read in the article that you wrote, I, I don't know how many years ago it was now, maybe six years ago or something. Uh, no more than that, or less than that, sorry. It was only three years ago. Uh, leaving, the exclu- leaving the exclusive brethren 10 years on. You describe that your family has been involved in the Brethren uh, basically since its inception, like you're the seventh generation. So give me a little bit of that and talk to me about some of the history uh, before we get into your story specifically. Mm. Yeah, that's the first ancestors of mine to join the exclusive Brethren were my great, great, great grandparents, um, Samuel and Elizabeth Childs, and they were actually family friends of the Darby and Wigram families in England a couple of hundred years ago. Um, And so when this new um, religious movement started in the 1820s, they were prime candidates to be brought along for the journey, if you like. Um, And something I've often thought about is sort of the, the, why it appealed to them in the first place. Um, This was a new religious movement that promised to throw out the rules of organized religion and you know, we're just going to follow the Bible. We're just going to be good people, and uh, there's nothing more to it than that. Um, and for my great 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 grandfather, who had been born out of wedlock, um, he'd lived his whole life under the shadow of feeling that God was going to judge him for being illegitimate, and that he didn't have a place in the Church of England or any of the other mainstream established churches. You know, there was very much a um, a belief at that time that. God would judge you on the circumstances of your birth. And so I understand why when family friends started this new religious movement that promised to do away with all of those rules, um, it was an appealing prospect. 
yeah, it's 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 a really kind of uh, the way that the that it's been explained to me the way that the uh, brethren has sort of progressed from like eighteen twenty to now. They, it, it seems to go through these little phases of, you know, we want to isolate ourselves, and then it be, it seems like it loosened up a little bit, like uh, up until around the sixties, and then Jim Taylor um, brought it back to sort of an isolationist cult. Why does it seem to to flip flop like that? Is it just a difference in leadership style? I think there's definitely a bit of change with leadership, but I also think that one of the biggest myths about the Exclusive Brethren is that they were somehow a more open, more liberal church prior to 1960. And to a certain extent, that is true. They were a little bit more open than they are now, but they were still very restrictive in terms of what their members could do and the lives that people were expected to live. And I look at the experiences of my great-grandparents, for instance, who left the church as teenagers around 1920, and their letters and diaries from that time of how terribly they were treated by their extended families and sort of the, the harassment and the way they were berated for not being part of the same church anymore. Um, very familiar patterns, and this is something that was happening 100 years ago. Yeah, that's the, that's one of the more interesting aspects is that nothing really changed over a period of a century. Hmm. Yeah, and not even further back, I go back through the family letters from the 1880s, the 1890s, and the same thing there. You know, they'll refer to someone who's left the brethren in these very sort of judgmental terms, you know, poor so-and-so, they've lost their way, we need to appeal to them, like if only they could see the light. There's none of this... Um, oh, well, you know, they're free to make their own choices. We can love them all the same. It was from a very judgmental place, a very sort of them and us. And I think that has been there from the very beginning. So I don't think the Brethren were ever a free, welcoming church, really. Yeah, I mean, I mean, look, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's got to be one of the more... Um, like to to a person not in the brethren like myself learning about this organization as i have been for the last year it, it's 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 just really interesting to talk to people that used to be on the other side of the lens because once you get out it's really easy to see all of the things that they do that you know prevent families from being together and basically run the gauntlet of every type of abuse that you can imagine um Let's fast forward then to to your childhood within the Brethren. So this is where I normally start my interviews with ex-members. Um, so just take us back to when you were a small child and what it was like, even if there were some good moments. Like, what was it like growing up as a little kid inside the Brethren where you were? <laughs> um, um, I didn't mean to be funny. <laughs> yeah, it was a good... Well, it's an interesting question because it's a question of whether you're asking about how I experienced it because I didn't know anything different or how I now see it with the benefit of 30 years of hindsight. Mm -hmm. um, but at the time, um, it was all we knew. It was a happy life, I suppose. We were surrounded um, by friends and family um, everywhere. You know, grandma lived up the road and there were cousins across the road. And um, it was just this constant network of friends and family and socializing and going to church. Um, going to church was relentless. Um, I remember that. Um, even if we were, my dad was 
sort of insistent that we meet to as many church meetings as possible, even when we're very young. And I remember being taken to church, even though I'd said I wasn't feeling well, and arriving at the meeting room and um, <clears throat> promptly vomiting into the gutter alongside the church. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and all of these like, brethren staring at me, like, why do you bring your sick kid to church? But that was um, dad's mindset, like, you had to go to church, come hell or high water. Yeah, the, the I mean, the, the notion of uh, Sundays and going to church like four times just seems like overkill. Like, mm. <laughs> like how much do you need to sit in a pew or whatever? Is it circular? My understanding that the chapel mm. inside of Brethren Church is circular. And then each, it's almost like a caste system where the the prominent families sit in the first row. And then as you get, like, how do you decide? Do, do the rows have the names? Did people just know that they weren't prominent and they would sit in the back row? Like, how did that work? Yeah, the prominent men sit in the front row. Right. And, and then the men are staggered back. And so you have all of the men right back to the least important men. And then you have all the women. Um, wow. But it, it's kind it, of... I was going to say, um, if there was a better way to show uh, a lack of respect for the fairer sex, I guess just go to a, mm. a church meeting, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, it was sort of, most people knew their place. Um, mm. And occasionally they would try and fill up the front row if too many people had hung back. Um, and then you'd have the senior elders or, you know, the older members maybe saying, oh, so-and-so, you come and sit down the front, so-and-so, you come and sit down the front. Um, and so there was a definite pecking order, and I, and we all knew what the pecking order was, but it would never have been explicitly um, told to us. If you were shut up, are you still allowed to go to church? And if so, are you just relegated to the back row? No. So if you're shut up, that's the first aid of excommunication when they put you into a form of quarantine. Okay. And while you're in that stage of being shut up, you're not allowed to attend services and no one from the church is allowed to have any contact with you at all. Um, so that's no social contact, no eating, no drinking. If they see you in the street, they'll cross to the other side. Um, if you work with them, um, they will not talk to you at work unless it's work-related. Um, and for as long as you're shut up, everyone who's living in the same house as you is considered to be part of an unclean house. Um, well, yeah, um, it, it's a concept that I'll never fully get used to. And the one that shows outsiders like me just how culty it can be, because I, I've heard stories about um, people uh, whose children were excommunicated and they have to literally ignore them as they walk down the street, like ignoring your own child, uh, which to me is, is one of the more like, it's, it just, it, it's so contradicts the instinct of a, of a child or a parent to do something like that. And, uh, and I can just imagine the trauma that, that the quiet trauma that it would produce. Hmm. Oh, Totally. And you look at the trauma that has gone on and the trauma, for instance, that my parents experienced when I was shut up and what they had to go through. But this wasn't new trauma for them. Um, they had, both my parents had had their fathers excommunicated. And so they'd been through that trauma of losing a parent and seeing how the family dealt with someone who was shut up. 
Um, <clears throat> and then in my dad's case, several of his siblings had been kicked out and his grandparents had been kicked out and had had uncles and aunties and cousins. And so sort of this was my first traumatic experience, but for them, this was, they'd had practice at what happened in these situations. Um, and so they were very rigid with how they enforced those rules. You seem to have a rebellious thread inside your family tree. Is that typical because of just the amount of time that your family has been involved with this organization going back to 1820? Or is this not really normal? Uh, look, I think every family has a trail of wreckage. And I wouldn't consider my family to be unique in any way. Um, it's only when you start, you start to tally it up and look at how many people have been um, like terribly, terribly damaged by the system. And um, no, I don't think my family's unique. Okay, let's now go to, um, let me ask you when you first started to get sort of an inkling that you're uh, about your sexuality. <laughs> um, Is inkling the, rat the wrong word? Sorry. <laughs> I, yeah, no, you know, um, like when did you start I, discovering that about yourself? I knew I was different from probably about the age of three or four. Um, and it was little things like I liked dressing up in my mum's clothes and I played with dolls as much as I played with the teddies. And, um, you know, I was fascinated. I remember when the, on rubbish collection days in summer, when they would come around collecting all the garbage and the, um, the guys on the truck wouldn't be wearing shirts and I remember like staring at them when I was three or four and I was fascinated and I could never have said why or what that meant or you know but I knew that I was different I knew that there was something about me that didn't fit in with what was expected of kids right um but I wouldn't have I wasn't able to articulate that and the thing is when you're in a closed religious group like the exclusive brethren you have no framework for understanding things like that wouldn't even have known that being gay was a thing um and we went through I went through puberty and the other boys started talking about girls and and I didn't really understand it um I thought it was maybe something that was going to come later or you know it was just it was just baffling I didn't have any understanding of why they were so interested in girls um, and then ironically, my first sort of realization that the gay community existed or that gay people existed um, was when New Zealand um, was parliament here was passing civil union legislation. And I would have been about 13 at the time. And the Brethren campaigned against it, as they so often do against any advancement of um, LGBT rights. Um, so my first awareness that the gay community existed was in the context of the Brethren campaigning against it and holding special prayer meetings to pray against them. Um, and so that was a really toxic way to learn about the existence of gay people. And then from that sort of a terrifying realization that I might be one of those people yeah I, I, did they do the same thing that they didn't hear in canada uh which was the they would uh they would do these letter writing campaigns and get members uh to 
sign like a hundred different sheets with a hundred different names and mail those to the politicians that were voting on civil union legislation. Was it similar in Australia or New Zealand? Yeah, there was a similar political campaign going on here. And this was around 2003, 2004, leading into sustained um, political campaigning by the Brethren in 2005, New Zealand's general election that year. Um, sort of the likes of which hasn't really been seen in politics since. Um, is that around went- the time, sort of cut you off, but is that around the time where we found out that the Brethren had put a private investigator on the prime minister and her spouse? Is that around the same time, or his? I, I can't remember if it was a man or woman who was leading. Her, yeah, yeah, Helen Clark was the prime minister at the time. Yeah, so 2005 election was when it all blew up, and then it was 2006 when it emerged that they had been um, hiring private investigators to tail the prime minister and her husband, and also several other senior cabinet ministers in the then Labour government, um, which was like, incredibly damaging for the centre-right parties that had been aligned with the exclusive brethren. Yeah, it, it just, it seems so ridiculous. Like, I can't imagine, I've never heard a story like that. I, I've never even um, conceptualized that there would be a religious group that would be, first of all, ballsy enough, and second of all, um, I guess powerful enough to actually successfully investigate a sitting head of state. Or attempt to. Or an attempt. Did they get anywhere? Like, were they? Did they? Did, so. did, did, did they find out? Like, was it a bumbling investigator who would like be looking through the bushes of the uh, <laughs> of the place where the prime minister mm. resides? Like, uh, how did that work? I mean, this is um, well. It'd be things like going through the trash and putting a tail on them to see where they went and all of those things. Um, because generally speaking, once you put something in the rubbish. Um, rubbish becomes public property is my understanding so there's it's, it's, it's just not, the fact that you can access a yeah. head of state's rubbish is that's what i find amazing i don't um, think like if i wanted to i don't think i could go through justin trudeau's trash you know i just i don't know where would you even find it <laughs> yeah exactly you'd, you'd have to be determined but the thing is the brethren have a track record with this and as we have seen um they do spy on former members and people that they see as a threat um and I remember after I first left, you know, in the weeks and months, I was staying with some friends. And, and for weeks, there was a car with tinted windows parked outside my friend's house. And yeah. and I said, oh, you know, that's that's just the brethren. And I didn't think anything of it because I just knew that was how they behaved. And so it wasn't unusual to me that they were sitting outside the house watching my movements. Um, but, of course, my friends were freaked out because this isn't how normal people behave. It must also be difficult to avoid feelings of paranoia. Like, what if what if another car shows up and you and it, it isn't a brethren? But it's hard, maybe, not to think that it is, right? Like, it's it, it, does mm. it foster those types of feelings when you? And we're going to circle back. We, we've jumped ahead a little bit, but I was just curious, mm. like that when that was happening and cars parked out front, it may seem like uh, typical brethren behavior to you. But did it ever spawn any feelings of like anxiety or, or paranoia? For me, no. Like, what are they going to find out? They can sit there and watch me go to work and go to town and go to the supermarket and maybe catch up with my friends and maybe come home a bit later than I was expecting. But, like, like how exciting for them. Yeah, scandalous behavior, my friend. Um, okay, let's go back to when you're 13. And uh, and, and then and then give me the, the sort of process of, 
of what happened, how how the brethren reacted to the news. How did they find out? And did and did you uh yeah, how did they find out about about you being gay uh when you were when you were still inside? Mm. Yeah, so I kept it to myself for several years after that. Um it wasn't something he just came out with. Um uh, as you would know, confessions are a big thing in the brethren. Yep. And when I was about eighteen, I was going through and confessing all of my sins to try and clear my ledger and um, get in God's good books, as it were, yeah. um, more accurately, the priest's good books. But I had been confessing all of my sins and dredging back through everything that I had ever done that might be wrong, confessing them one by one, and um, never confessed that I was gay because that was a much bigger thing to confess. It wasn't something I had done that I could just say I wouldn't do again. It was who I was. Right. Um, and eventually it was sort of desperation that drove me to confess my sexuality to the priests um, because I believed that it was the one thing that was holding me back from it getting to that sort of higher plane of religious happiness. Um, it sounds ridiculous when you talk about it now. Um, but when you feel like shit and you believe that there must just be this one sticking point that's holding you back from being happy and close to God and all this, um, you'll do anything you can to try and get to that place that they say you should be getting to. And so I um, eventually confessed to the priests that I was gay. Um, something that was immediately reported back to the world leader, Bruce Hales in Sydney. Um, and sorry, that how was old what... were you when that happened? When you, when you confessed? Confessed. Sorry. When you, <laughs> when, when you told them something totally fine um, and they overreacted? What, how old were you? I was, I was 18 and I was blind drunk at the time. Um, well, because I think you have these confession sessions with the priests, and for me, they usually happened on a Friday night. And I would go around to the priest's house, and they would just they would ply you with whiskey until you said what was on your mind. Um, and on that particular night, you know, it was clear that I was building up to something big, and so the whiskeys just kept coming. <laughs> were you were you a drinker at the time? Like, because I know that's a big thing with brethren men. And I was just curious, you're 18 years old, they're plying you with it, but were you were you a, a regular drinker at the time? Oh, we all were. Um, drinking sort of pervaded everything that we did. Um, and you'd easily knock back half a bottle of scotch in a night and still be holding a conversation. Okay, um, I'm going to read an excerpt from the piece that you wrote that I mentioned earlier. Um, the piece is called Leaving the Exclusive Brethren Ten Years On. You wrote it in 2020. Um, and here we go. Bruce Hales was a paunchy office furniture salesman from Sydney, the worldwide leader of the Exclusive Brethren, having ruled since his father John Hales died in January 2002. He had a penchant for good food and an even greater penchant for good whiskey. In December 2007, not long after my ultimate confession, I was ushered to a consultation with Hales where he visited Invercargill. Did I say that right? Yes. Okay, good. 
<laughs> for special church meetings. He was sympathetic to my plight, but made it clear that there was no place for gay people, warning me, never accept yourself for who you are. I had hoped he had might wave his hand and declare I was cured. Instead, I felt condemned to struggle against the essence of who I was. It is too much to bear. And a few days later, I packed a bag and ran away. It was an ill-advised attempt to escape. I had no plans and nowhere to go. Within days, the brethren ta- tracked me down to a Christian in Christian church, or, sorry, in Christ church, and appealed for my return. I stayed briefly with my aunt and uncle in Palmerston North, and in January 2008, I was sent to stay in Sydney under the watchful eye of Bruce, uh, Bruce Hales himself. Sydney marked a new chapter. <clears throat> I had further meetings with Bruce Hales, and he told me to consult a brethren doctor to receive treatment for my, quote, condition. This doctor, Mark Craddock, sat in his living room and told me being gay was one of the emptiest lifestyles a person could lead. He wrote a prescription for, crip, for Cripostat, a hormonal suppressant usually reserved for sex offenders and prostate cancer patients. Craddock told me that he was experimenting with helping others change their sexuality, as yet unsuccessfully, and in the meantime, at least my sex drive could be significantly reduced. The medication left me lethargic and unhappy, and I stopped taking it after a few weeks, although I had enough repeats on the prescription to last for a year. I wrote to Bruce Hales thanking him for his help, imparting the good news that I had overcome my sinful feelings. It wasn't true. This, when I first heard about this last year, it was one of the most shocking things I I think I have ever heard, to be so bold in your religious determinations and and ideology that you would take an 18-year-old and prescribe that 18 year old a prescription normally reserved for pedophiles in order to dull your sexual interest in the same sex basically to stop you from being who you are take me back to that and and tell me what mindset you had when you first found out what you were being prescribed and what it was supposed to do for you well i think the the thing now looking back is i i had no idea so when i met with mark craddock um, <clears throat> he wrote the prescription and all he talked about was that it would reduce my libido. That was it. There was no discussion of any other side effects or what the drug was usually prescribed for or how long I should take it for um, or what some of the risks were. Um, it was just, you know, I was seeing him on the orders of Bruce Hales, the world leader of the church, and therefore Bruce Hales wanted me to be treated. And treated and writing a writing a prescription was the easiest way to do that and he told me that he had been experimenting with other young gay people in the church um and as yet hadn't found a way to change someone's sexuality and in the meantime what they could do was basically um kill it altogether which was the idea behind prescribing a hormonal suppressant that shut down um, testosterone. I mean, this is a massive step. uh, I I was going to say up, but away from praying the gay away. Like you're talking about a chemical uh, solution, faux solution to um, something that isn't even a problem. It, It like... I don't even know how to describe it. I've never heard of this. I didn't, I've never heard of this before in this context, before I heard your story. Like I, no one had ever said to me, Oh yeah. The Mormons sometimes when, uh, when a member turns out to be gay, they give them 
pedophile drugs to chemically castrate them. I, this is, you're the very first time, and maybe that's my naivete, but have you heard of any other members who were in your situation who also had a prescription like this given to them? Yes. Yeah, I, I know for sure that I wasn't the only one. Um, it just happened that I was the first one to speak about it publicly. And is there, I mean, is it, was it a normal thing? For, for 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 specific situations of of trying to suppress uh, someone's natural sexuality, well, it, it's hard to say because sexuality was something that was so tightly suppressed in the church that I didn't even know there were other gay people in the brethren until quite near the end, and so I wouldn't have had any concept of the fact that there were other people having the same experiences as me, and that was partly why it was so important to me to speak out after I left and to share my stories so that people that were still in there knew that it wasn't okay and that they weren't the only people that were having those sorts of experiences. What was it like to, because you, I think you're the only, maybe the only second member, possibly third, that I've spoken with who had uh, face-to-face meetings with Bruce Hales. And I want to know what that was like. And it can, if you could, if you can indulge me, give me the um, the Craig Hoyle that was there at the time and then translate that to the Craig Hoyle who can see those meetings in hindsight. Because <laughs> I, um, I saw the smirk when I was asking a question. I was like, that's the hindsight smirk. <laughs> you know? um, there were a few... Um... Yeah, I had a few meetings with Bruce Howes, um, including in his office, um, where, you know, we had all sorts of discussions. But the interaction with him that really sticks out is an evening that we had at my cousin's house in Sydney. He had come round for dinner, and I was sitting right next to him in the living room. He was on my left-hand side, and um, Tony McCorkle, who was the Brethren spin doctor at the time, was sitting on my other side they were both but I'm not a small person but I was wedged in between two enormous people um and the whiskey so Bruce Hales drinks his whiskey or at least at that time he was drinking his whiskey neat so you'd have a tumbler sort of but like the one I'm drinking water out of not whiskey um but put some ice in it and then fill it to the brim with scotch um, and he knocked back five of those before dinner. Wow. Um, and, <laughs> and and then switched to wine during dinner oh. and then yeah. carried on drinking after dinner. Um, but the remarkable thing was he didn't seem drunk. I mean, flushed maybe, like merry, definitely. Um, but he wasn't wasted like I would be if I drank that much whiskey now. Yeah. Um, but... What we moved on after dinner and we did what brethren often do, standing around the piano and playing all sorts of songs and, you know, belting out the gospel hymns. Um, And someone suggested that we sing Candle in the Wind. Um, And there was this awkward silence because Elton John songs had been banned because Elton John was a gay degenerate. Wow. Um, and we all knew that Bruce Hales had said you shouldn't sing Elton John songs. And here was someone suggesting we sing an Elton John song. Um, 
How did, you all, how did you all even know Elton John songs? I thought like media was banned in localities. Well, they are, but then um, pop culture and song sort of have a way of filtering Sleeping, through. Yeah. And although we weren't allowed to listen to pre-recorded music, it was still, you were still allowed to go to a music shop and buy the sheet music and learn wow. to play it yourself on the piano. So there were all of these sort of songs like, say Glenn Campbell's Rhinestone Cowboy that brethren had learned to play off sheet music. <laughs> and and then I I left the brethren and I heard like Glenn Campbell singing it. And I was like, why is he singing it like that? That's not how it's sung. Because the brethren had come up with their own sort of weird twist on how the music should be played. A more manly um, way of playing it, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, that was how songs like that had ended up filtering through. But um, someone suggested that we sing Candle in the Wind and we all sort of looked at each other awkwardly and looked at Bruce Hales to see how he would react. Um, and like to my utter astonishment, he just said, oh, yeah, yeah, let's sing that one. Um, and I just remember like standing there staring at the man of God, like belting out Candle in the Wind, knowing that he had banned us from singing Elton John songs. And oh. it just sort of that moment encapsulates um, sort of how fucked up it all was. And, you know, none of us could make sense because it didn't make sense. Did he? And so just just so I'm clear, he knew at the time what you were going through. Yes. So but but the, but he's not really clever or strategic enough for because when, when you first said it, I was like, maybe it's just a test. How happy will Craig be when we start singing Candle in the Wind? Mm. Oh you no, know? God! He's like five whiskeys deep at that point. I don't think he's strategizing. <laughs> well, maybe he's that functional of an alcoholic. <laughs> I don't know. Um, um, okay, but, so yeah, go ahead. Oh no, just on the subject of alcohol. Like never in my life, like living in Sydney with the brethren there, never in my life have I seen alcohol consumption like that. And it was um, directly tied to your spiritual worth as well. Like I remember being told that you could. Um, determine a man's spiritual measure by how much alcohol he was able to handle. Really? Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, I mean, I don't want to butcher the concept of Rastafarianism, but you know, the, the caricature of the Rasta is that you reach the, uh, the next plane of faith through marijuana. So it's just interesting that um, they would, they would do the same thing, but with Johnny Walker, it just seems a little bit less spiritual. <laughs> Oh, it was, it was tacky, like tacky is all, but yeah, um, quite sad as well. I remember we left the main hall in Sydney one evening <clears throat> and the main hall in Sydney had security on the gates because it was the home of the world leader and brethren had left and gone up the main road and there was a police drink driving checkpoint up the road. And they immediately called back to tell the security guards on the gate to like warn all the rest of the brethren as they left the church grounds that there was a drink driving checkpoint up the road and so they should take a different route home because they might still be over the limit from the whiskey that they drank before the church service two hours earlier. Uh, I just want to give a shout out to Jen Waddell who has now dubbed uh, the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church as Scotchafarianism. <laughs> which I think is hilarious. 
<clears throat> okay, so um, so you so you sing "Candle in the Wind." Now you're 18 years old. So give me uh, sort of like a synopsis between what your what, what the process was like between the uh, turning 18 and when you were finally out. Mm, yeah, so I think I was 19 by the time I was living in Sydney because this had all dragged on for quite some time. Um, and <clears throat> came back to New Zealand um, from my time in Sydney. I had one last face-to-face meeting with Bruce Howes at church meetings in Brisbane. And he told me that if I left the Brethren, the only people, or if I pursued my natural tendencies, the only people that I would ever get on with would be wicked people and that there would be no sort of love or warmth to be found. Um, But that didn't really ring true for me, especially after having spent so much time up close with him. Um, He just didn't seem as special as what people were making him out to be. Um, So to cut a long story short, I ended up back in New Zealand um, over the course of the next six months, realised that it was not going to work to stay in the church. There was just no future. Um, And started laying the groundwork for getting out. And that's a, a long and complicated process. I mean, for me, I wanted to um, make sure that I had said goodbye to people that I wanted to say goodbye to. So I went on a, a road trip and visited people like, you know, uncles and aunties and cousins and so on, knowing that it was the last time I would see them. And started building networks outside of the Brethren and um, making those new connections. And it's the things that you don't necessarily think about in the beginning but collecting health records and photographs from your childhood and all of those things that are really difficult to access once you're out Mm. um and are you having to get these this these documents from the same doctor the dr haddock uh who who prescribed you the uh the medication no no so he was a sydney-based doctor with the brethren and i had a regular GP back home in New Zealand Um, it's more those like the baby records that your parents keep that sort of document what happened during your childhood um, those sorts of things Um, and um, eventually it built to a point where I called a meeting with the priests and told them that I was leaving the church Um, but I was very clear that I was leaving the church, but I was not leaving my family or my job or my home. Hmm. And I don't think they usually accept that, do they? (laughs) No, of course not. But sure, that'd be great, Craig. (laughs) Yeah, but I was I was um, determined to make a point that I had left the church, but none of the rest of it was my choice. Do you know um, what I find really uh, intriguing about that is that Ben Woodbury said the, a similar thing. Like he left, but was like, I'm not leaving the town that I grew up in. You know, so he it was kind of like a private one man protest in a sense hmm. of saying, you know, you may not accept who I am, but I'm not going to run because you happen to be in my vicinity. When you took the road trip to say goodbye to your family, were they aware that you were leaving and was there any blowback that you saw face to face where they're like, I don't know why you're visiting me. You're done. We're done with you. Was there any of that? Um, no. So at that point I hadn't announced that I was leaving. Okay. Um, 
so there's sort of very much a private private farewell in the sense that i was the only one that knew it was a farewell right. kind of that's pretty strange. powerful that's a powerful experience though especially because you gotta you gotta sort of maintain that cover of this is just a normal visit mm. yeah and it's sort of the closest analogy i can make is that you're seeing these people and they're still dancing to this music and you can't hear the music anymore but you're still having to pretend to dance as though you can right um, were you are were you already at the point where you're you're kind of becoming decultified and you could start seeing the thing that people like me see when when people are saying certain things or behaving a certain way yeah absolutely it's like this is bullshit um yeah. and i want out yeah. but at the same time there are a lot of things here that i will miss there are people that i'll miss and there are experiences that i'll miss um and also that fear that comes with knowing that you're leaping into the unknown and no amount of preparation can really get you ready for that did the medication which i if i'm if my math is right based on a couple of the things that you said by this point you have been off of it for a little under a year when you when you left did it have any um short or long-term damage to you physically and or mentally yeah so at the time that I was taking it, there was, as I wrote in that piece, sort of lethargy and general sort of, um, I wouldn't call it depression, but, you know, definitely weighing on my mental health. Um, but when when you're in a situation like this, you're, you've got trauma coming at you from all directions. And I, you know, I just went on for weeks feeling like shit, thinking it was because of all of the other pressure that was piling on. And it took me a few weeks to go actually hey maybe it's these really strong drugs that the doctor prescribed yeah maybe um yeah and the same thing like when i was leaving that whole process for that year or so um was so sort of intensely traumatic that it would never you know your body goes through such an extreme physiological response um it, you know you can feel the grief um it's like you're sort of heart is being ripped out um <clears throat> and the trauma of that sort of emotional loss is so overwhelming that you can't really distinguish whether there are any lesser traumas that might be playing a part yeah that makes sense and also the the um the fact that you were you, you're at that age it, i don't even know how to word this without sounding overly philosophical but you're 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 at that age where people uh, that aren't in cults are kind of seeing the fold in the next chapter of their lives and leaving their homes and trying to figure out how to be an adult and so you got a kind of a double dose of that didn't you uh, like a triple or quadruple or <laughs> even more um, um yeah and i was i was lucky in one respect that i came out young enough that people saw that I had lost my parents. Um, whereas for a lot of people, you know, if you leave in your mid twenties or your thirties or whatever, um, by that point you're expected to be independent anyway. Um, and so people don't say, oh, you need parenting because you're, you're too old for that now. But sort of at 19, you're still young enough that when people see that you've lost their parents, they feel that they want to step in and 
sort of give you that support. Um, so, yeah, so that was one of the silver linings for me was that I was young enough that a lot of people stepped in. Yeah. Uh, can you tell me about the relationships that you lost and how that made you feel at the time? And were there any of your family members that were still inside that were good to you? Yeah, so, I mean, the relationships that I lost, it was every single relationship in my life at that point. Mm. Um, and there were some that were particularly difficult to lose. For instance, my grandmother, my dad's mother. Um, and I remember going and saying goodbye. I had an afternoon in Invercargill where I knew that I was about to be placed in the first age of excommunication. That was my last chance to drive around and say goodbye to everyone. Um, and, you know, it was just probably still the worst, worst day of my life. Um, Can you take me back to when you had to say goodbye to your grandma? Yeah, so <clears throat> I arrived um, on her doorstep and later found out that my dad had called ahead and told her not to let me in. Yeah. And she stood there on the doorstep and said she felt that she couldn't let me into her house. And And I said, well, I haven't been shut up yet, so can you give me one last hug at least? Because, you know, is that okay? Um, <clears throat> and she agreed, and we just stood there standing on her doorstep, like sobbing our eyes out for probably half an hour. Um, and she wouldn't let me into her house, but she would stand there and hug me and cry. Um, and it was just this um, sort of catastrophic crumpling of who she was um or the latest chapter in her crumpling and i was so i was the first of her grandchildren to leave um but she'd spent her whole life watching her family disappear so when she was a teenager her grandfather had been kicked out and then in the 70s her parents were kicked out and then her husband was kicked out and then several of her children. Um, so she'd already sacrificed her parents, she'd sacrificed her husband, she'd sacrificed children and now I was the first of her grandchildren that were going out of the church and she was just, just absolutely distraught. Um, and she kept saying over and over, you know, why would the, why would the devil do this? He's so cruel. It's so cruel. Why is the devil doing this? And you look back with hindsight and say, well, it's not the devil at all. It's this um, it's this cult that you're a part of. But she didn't have the framework to see it that way. Do you, is it possible, <clears throat> excuse me, is it possible that she had guilt that, that was resonating while you guys were embracing each other and crying? I know what she said, that why would the devil do this? But, you know... Uh, <sighs> Sometimes I wonder if if there's these dual loyalties in members that remain behind inside the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church where they say things that fall in line with what the institution wants them to say, but maybe their emotional reaction is more attached to a sort of sense of grief, and I can't believe I have to do this again. 
Yeah, I think that varies from person to person. Um, there were also people like my great aunt who um, was stuck in the church but did not agree with the Brethren's rules. Um, and Those are my favorite very... members. Those are my favorite. <laughs> mm. um, and and I had had you know a number of like quite honest conversations with her as a teenager and she had been very honest in telling me what she thought of the church and how she wished she had left as a teenager in the 50s and had hadn't um, and then spent the rest of her life being increasingly trapped you know every time she had a crisis of belief she was even deeper than she had been during the last crisis and she had just um you know and she said you know you can go now it's too late for me um but you can go um and she her granddaughter was leaving around the same time and she she promised that she would keep in contact with us and support us and so on but then she got found out by the priests i don't know how um and you know this is an older woman she was a great grandmother by that point and the priests are sitting her down and berating her for talking to her granddaughter and her nephew because they thought she was being a bad influence and from their understanding of the rules she was absolutely a bad influence yeah. <laughs> um, but she was one of the few people in the brethren um that I could have a rational conversation with about how I was feeling. Yeah. The, the um, did you also have a, a, a sort of instinct or a tendency growing up to hang out with the women? Um, the reason why I asked is because Ben Woodbury did, and I found it really interesting to sort of get a little peek behind the curtain of what women were like when they were all together, where there was, among some of them a sort of quiet recognition that they didn't enjoy being second-class citizens do you know what i'm saying mm, mm. yeah so i was always much more interested in um what would have been seen as the female subjects at brethren school and it struck me as being <laughs> very unfair that the girls got to go off and do cooking and sewing and all of those things that i would have been interested in doing and I was forced off to do automotive and carpentry with the boys. Right. Um, and I was the eldest of seven. So the three eldest in our family were all boys. And so, so to a certain extent, it fell to me to help mum with things like preparing for guests. And so it wasn't particularly unusual for me to be spending time in the kitchen and to be working with the, the women as they were preparing food or serving us or all of those things um i mean i i heard ben's podcast and like him it would i didn't really have any concept that how i was behaving was different it was just where i wanted to be mm -hmm. i was much more interested in being with the women in the kitchen preparing the food and talking about whatever they were talking about than i was in sitting in the living room talking about religion or politics with the men or out in the yard talking about cars, but none of those things interested me. Um, and I doubt that my parents would have had the framework to recognize that, you know, maybe 
I was gay and I look back at my childhood now and I think, well, I've, like, should have been obvious. Um, but for people who didn't have that framework, um, clearly it wasn't. Are, are, is it because you're an imposing figure? Like, are you really tall and everything? Is that is that sort of, do you think that made people kind of look past what normally might be, uh, you know, a telltale sign for lack of better description? <laughs> I don't know. Because you know, the, uh, straight people that grow up in a religious uh, in a religious environment probably associate the more the most generalized version of what a gay man would be like, right? Like, the, the, mm. the, it just seems like that would be um, what they would uh, what what they would perceive. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I suppose um, there were, you know, the way I dressed or the way I acted was perhaps not entirely. Um, how people would traditionally have interpreted masculinity. Mm. Um, but then at the same time, I worked in a tire shop and I could change tractor tires and we lived on a small lifestyle block and we had, you know, goats and a pig and all of, you know, I was quite capable of mucking in with those sorts of things. So, you know, it's much more, much more nuanced than I think we perhaps give credit for looking back. Um, but, yeah, there was certainly, I look back now at some of the people that I knew in the Brethren, and I'm not, they were clearly gay. Um, yeah. But even I didn't recognize that at the time. You know, there's a part of me that thinks that Bruce Hales might uh, might be gay. And uh, if he's listening, Bruce, it gets better. You know, you should just uh, try your best to, 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 to be accepted among your flock. No, I'm just kidding. I, 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 I think that that would bother that whole family so much that I do it for fun. But really what I'm trying to do is expose just how ignorant it is. Um, so when you when you left and you said your goodbyes and you had uh, you, you had the experience of, of seeing people for the last time, how was because I, I mean, it's, it's the, the you, now your life pendulum is swinging in the entirely different direction. How did you handle that? And did it take uh, did it take a lot of work to sort of shed the veneer of the PBCC once you left? <laughs> I think shedding that veneer is something we spend the rest of our lives doing. Mm. Um, I think it's such a um, it's overwhelming, and and you can prepare for all of the big things, um, like you know your your loss of family and your loss of community and all of those things, but. Sometimes it's the small things that throw you, um, like not being able to use a TV remote or not knowing how to tune a radio dial or not knowing what the proper etiquette was in a restaurant. Or like it's all of those, you spend all this time preparing for the big things and then there are all of these small things that sort of hit you out of nowhere as well. Um, but for me, I think I went into survival mode um what had happened in that process of saying those goodbyes was so dreadful um <clears throat> so damaging that for quite a while after that i couldn't really feel emotions um which is you know that's just a, a psychological sort of safety mechanism really you weren't able to feel emotions like once you left. Is that what you said? 
yeah, so for a period of probably about six months, um, <clears throat> and I remember um, that Saturday where I'd said the goodbyes um, and came home and sort of, yeah, lay on the bed and cried and cried and cried and cried. And sort of after that, there were no more tears to give for quite a long time. Um, it was as though my capacity for grief had been exhausted. Um, and the only way through that was to just sort of survive one step at a time. Um, but the advantage of that was that, um, you know, for me, if I'm going through an extreme emotional experience, one of my sort of defaults is to become quite logical, quite not cold exactly, but I'll just retreat to a very practical place. Um, like I'll do this thing and then I'll do that thing and then I'll do the next thing without really getting emotional about it. Um, so it did enable me to really take a step back and process a lot of what was happening sort of quite rationally. That's actually an interesting character trait because uh, it, it would be it would be a different story if you were if, if you were put in that mode without that uh, emotional goodbye tour because I guess you purged all of the emotions that you could. That's like a grieving process for you, right? Like this is this is the one thing that I think a lot of people are starting to understand about ex-members is that their process is very similar to a typical grieving process when a family member passes away. And I think mm. that you kind of, uh, you know, astonishingly were able to, uh, like you said, practically, um, you know, shed those emotions in a way that's healthy. I mean, this is your, uh, and I'm thinking about your grandma. I know what it was like to, to, to love a grandparent and I couldn't even imagine saying goodbye to them. Was that the last time you saw your grandmother? Yes, um, <clears throat> properly. I saw her again on her deathbed mm. um, in 2016, um, 2016, 2017. Um, but that was a strange experience. Can you, can um, you go back? Would you mind going back there? Yeah. Um, I had heard that she was dying. She had cancer. And I called my parents up and I said, I want to see grandma before she dies. And they said, no, um, she doesn't want to see you. And I said, well, put her on the phone. And if grandma tells me herself that she doesn't want to see me, then sure. But otherwise, I'm going to come. Um, and sure enough, she wasn't put on the phone. Um, so in the end, they, I think her biggest concern was that I would turn up and cause a scene at her funeral, um, which often happens when people in the Brethren die. Um, they'll try and prevent excommunicated people from attending the service or being at the graveside. Um, and so my parents came back and said that they would arrange a meeting with her if I agreed not to turn up to her funeral. And by this point, I was living in Auckland, which is the other end of New Zealand. and I wasn't going to make two trips. Um, <laughs> you know. I don't blame you, um, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's like, I suppose it would be like going between Toronto and Vancouver. And it's like, are you going to make two trips for their deathbed and the funeral, or are you just going to do one? Sorry, Auckland, um, New Zealand? 
Auckland, New Zealand. Yes. I think you can fit like 35 New Zealands in Canada. So I think it's probably more <laughs> like, maybe it's more like Toronto to Montreal, but go ahead. And it'd be like a, it's like a two hour flight, however far that is. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's like, it's like, it's like flying to Calgary. Yeah. It's like, yeah. It's okay. Like, yes. Yeah. Um, my geography is a bit off there, but, yeah. <laughs> um, so I went to Invercargill and I saw her at the hospice and it was just um, quite strange um, because it felt to me as though she had been dead for quite a long time. Mm. I had already gone through my grieving process. I'd already said goodbye. Um, she hadn't been in my life for eight years um, and now suddenly here she was again. Did um, she speak to you? She did. Um, she was, um, you know, fading. This was within a week of her death. And, you know, they wake her up and she said, oh, Craig's here to say goodbye. And she said, oh, goodbye, Craig, and drifted off again. Yeah. Um, so a bit of an anticlimax, really. Yeah. Um, but, do you, yeah. Do you, do you regret going or do, are you happy that you did? No, I, I'm glad that I went because it was important to me to stand up and say, hey, um, I am here, I'm paying my respects. Um, if this is awkward, it's because you're making it awkward. It's not through lack of trying or lack of caring on my part. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it was just callous. I was standing there um, and I did cry because, you know, it, it was emotional. I'm um, hard to pin down what those emotions were. Um, <clears throat> but it's sort of a strange, very strange thing to be standing at your grandmother's deathbed after not seeing her for eight years. Um, and so I'm standing there beside her bed crying and sort of my parents are there and my uncle and auntie and all these people and they're just standing there with their arms folded sort of in a suit, just watching. And I'm standing there like crying over my grandmother's deathbed. Not one of them asked, like, are you okay? Or stepped forward or gave me a hug or put their hand on my shoulder. Or, you know, they just watched in this like, absolute stony silence um, while I stood there crying on my own above my dying grandmother and then walked out. Like, it was such a bizarre experience. Are you going to attend any funerals for anybody in your immediate family siblings parents or, or you know or are you are you do you think that that is a is something that you don't need to do anymore i don't know um case by case i think yeah. um depends depends whether it's someone that i liked <laughs> That is the most honest answer I can hope for. Um, but I haven't I haven't really thought about it. And my parents my parents aren't old, they're still in their fifties. Right. Um and so um yeah, it's it's I often say these things in life come up and you don't know how you'll respond to them until they happen. Um but we did have a really um so my grandfather both my grandfathers were kicked out of the brethren, but my grandfather on the other side, um, who I did become close to after leaving, um, he died in 2019. And it was equally strange to be on the other side of that equation 
you know, here was grandpa dying and we were having to tell all of the brethren family what was going on. Um, and similar thing, I rang my mum and I said, hey, you know, grandpa's dying, he's in the hospital, he's had a heart attack. Is that her um, father? That's her father. Okay. You know, in case you want, you know, do you want to come and say goodbye? And say, no, not interested. Um, so that ruined your chance to fold your arms and stare at them as they cried over <laughs> the grave. <laughs> we um, we did have so the one the one brethren person who showed up was my uncle, um, and it was just um, it was bizarre. And I talked to grandpa a lot about our shared experiences, and he'd you know used to try and keep in touch with his son. He'd call him up occasionally, and I'd have a you know a stilted conversation that never went anywhere. But Grandpa got frustrated because he said, you know, how why is it always me calling you, and how come you never call me? Um, and my uncle said to him, oh, we we would call you if we got worried about you. And Grandpa said, oh, how long would that take? And he said, oh, about five years. Um, <laughs> just just going by the age of. <laughs> <laughs> What well, I don't really know where five years came from. That's like that's a long time to not hear from a member of your family before getting worried. Um, <clears throat> but Grandpa thought, well, I'll, I'll put this to the test, and so he he waited and he waited. Five years went past, no phone calls. Like six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Um, never heard from him again. Um, like even the five years was bullshit, and then. Grandpa's on his deathbed, and suddenly his son starts showing up at the hospital every day um, oh. to see him. It's just like you've just ignored your father for the better part of 40 years um, and told him that it would take at least five years before you got concerned about him and then didn't bother calling him for more than 10 years, and now suddenly you're turning up to see him every day. It was the strangest thing. Is that a silver lining or do you think that is a symptom of a person doing it for the wrong reason? It was just stupid. Like grandpa had had a heart attack. He was brain dead. There was nothing there. He's just turning up to look at a sack of meat with a beating heart in ICU. Like it was pointless. Um, we have a couple minutes left. You've been out now for how long? 2009. So 14 years this year. 14 years. Where are you in your life? Are you happy? Uh, and, and you know, are you a, a sort of conduit for new ex-members? Like, do they seek you out or do you seek them out? Um, yes, I am happy, first of all, very happy with my life. Um, so I became a journalist after leaving. Um, and I'm still in journalism. And I... My story has been very public and it's sort of often been told and often been shared. And yes, one of the consequences of that is that a lot of people have encountered my story and have contacted me. And I still um, often hear from people who are still in the Brethren who want advice or help um, sometimes for leaving. And then there are also people that remind me of my great aunt who are trapped and feel they will never be able to leave but want someone to talk to who they think will understand that they can trust well listen um i find your story to be uh 
covers the entire emotional gauntlet. It's it's shocking. It's it's you know uh, rewarding in a sense because of where you are in your life right now, and uh, you know you should be pretty proud of yourself for what you've been able to do and how you've been able to you know. Uh, what what stuck out with me with the, in this whole interview and there was so many compelling moments i thought but the the one thing that stuck out is is that grieving process and the ability that you were able to discover that you had for being able to sort of get on with it without sort of living in that uh dark emotional place so uh you know congrats on that because i think that's a victory you know in the in the grand scheme of things thank you craig hoyle thank you very much uh for joining us tonight on black Belt. i really appreciate it pleasure have a good night, sir. Okay. What a compelling man. Um, I'm, you know, these stories don't get easier, but uh, you know, he he delivers uh, his story in such a way where you know I found it, uh, you know, super informative and uh, and a good peek behind the curtain of of what uh, a singular story can be like when you leave a group like the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church. Uh, so this week we are going to feature another three or four stories from ex-members. Uh, we'll announce them as they come. We're shuffling uh, schedules because there's people in uh, various places in the world. Uh, we're covering, I think, three or four continents. I can't remember. Uh, so please uh, you know, keep in mind that this week will be a Plymouth Brethren week, and so uh, we hope that you can join us then. So we'll see you next time on Black Bowl. Hi, I'm Mercedes Nickel, four-time Winter Olympian and host of Dropping In, a podcast with Mercedes. This is a podcast where I interview a bunch of different people. I get the good, the bad, and the ugly, as well as I share my stories along the way. Now you can drop in at droppingin.com or subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube. I'll see you soon. I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people. He, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from JeffWoodsRadio.com.